I invite you to open your Bibles to the last page of the Old Testament. A statement made by Malachi, who has been um, somewhat comedically referred to as the last of the Italian prophets, Malachi. <laughs> it's not Malachi. It's Malachi. I want to read you just the last sentence, um, the last couple of sentences of the Old Testament written by Malachi. Malachi chapter 4 at verse 5. You follow as, as I read. Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Well, happy Father's Day. You know, it's odd, isn't it, the the kind of influence that we fathers have over our homes, our families, our children? We don't deserve it, but we have it anyway. (laughs) Uh, If you ever wanted to see Cindy Cole's passion flame to a white-hot heat, all you had to do is mention this subject. I mean, she was was wild-eyed about the influence uh, of a father... In his, in his own home and the, and the role that daddy played in, in, in the home. You know, in, in, all, in all honesty, uh, um, moms are better at it. That is this whole parenting thing. Uh, moms are better at it than, at least most moms are better at it than, than we dads. But, um, we're the ones with all the influence. You, uh, don't agree. Well, um, just give this a bit of thought. Um, if you've done any counseling in your life before, which I do a fair measure of, um, and I don't, I don't do this much because I'm not, <laughs> I'm way over my head, but, uh, in the counseling office with the counselors, what is the subject that seems to come up without fail? Well, could you tell me about your relationship to your Daddy, <laughs> I mean, I, the mama gets in there too, and, um, but you know the the big thing is the big the big the key variable is um, what about your relationship to your daddy? It help me understand that your relationship to your daddy. You know, I've often wondered what my daughters um, say to their husbands or their friends or their counselors or whomever about. Their daddy. Because I bet it's not all glowing. But guys, with that in mind, that, 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 that influence that I'm, I'm alluding to, our text makes a statement that it's just, it's just beautiful. Um, don't you think, um, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children? And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, guys, exegetically, if you know what that word means, uh, um, exegetically, it's hard to say that Malachi, when he wrote that, was thinking of the family. 
more likely, he is thinking of a national repentance that will be brought to Israel by the arrival of the coming of the Lord, which will be announced and prepared by the coming of Elijah. And you, you may recall it was Jesus in the New Testament who says that that Elijah was John the Baptist. You might know that. But, it, but that's what he's really talking about. But, but it is fair to say this about this text. That one of the benefits, one of the results, one of the outcomes of a national repentance will be a family benefit. One of the, um, the inevitable results of a, of a nation that repents of her sin is that the hearts of daddies will be restored to the hearts of their children and the hearts of children will be restored to the hearts of their daddies. Now that's not the only benefit. But it's interesting that Malachi mentioned that one. That in this great day of the coming of the Lord, one of the benefits, one of the benefits will be this, this beautiful, harmonious restoration between daddies and their children and children and their daddies. So here's what I want to do today. In, in the light of that text, in that, I, I would say, I, I think you would agree with me, a much longed for scenario that daddies and children's hearts would be restored. I want to recommend a plan, a plan by which we might usher in that restoration of um, daddies' hearts to their children and children's hearts to their daddies. It's a threefold plan, three things that I'd like to, I'd like to address to, um, to daddies, um, husbands in, um, in their homes. Three things that I want to, I want to call us to. Are you ready? Here we go. First of all, brothers, let's us commit ourselves to being the best husbands we can possibly be. Um, that is, we are trying to create a home that is marriage-centered and not kid-centered. Um, l- let me give you an example, or just a bit of an example of what that might look like. Um, imagine, this is just trying to illustrate what I'm trying to point out. Um, daddies, what's the first thing that you do when you come home from work? Let's say you got this young family and, and, uh, you come home from work. What's the first thing that you do? Well, you know, we, uh, we play with the kids. And, um, we play with the kids thinking, um, uh, this way. Well, you know, um, haven't seen those kids all day. Never stopping to think that I haven't seen my wife all day either. And, and I had this hunch, uh, I'm not sure I can prove this, but I had this hunch that if, if kids, uh, knew the difference, they would much prefer daddy to spend time with mommy anyway and just be left alone. But they don't know the difference. And so when daddy gets home from work, there they are standing at the door, toys in hand. And so onto the floor we go to play with our kids. Now, mama, she she kind of appreciates that because it it gets the kids off her hands for a little while. But um, But apparently, mama has got her own problems of marital amnesia. Because apparently she has forgotten that her biggest need, her primary need, is to spend quality time with her husband. And in addition to that, 
the kids can be taken off of both of their hands if somebody will simply step forward and say, kids, mama and daddy are going to spend some time together. You go find something else to do. That's all it takes. That's one of the things that we could do to begin to make our homes marriage-centered and not kids-centered. You know, guys, I, I'm afraid that we, we, um, we men, we have caved into some feminist propaganda that describes us as these great um, manipulative aggressors who wants to subjugate women and men so that we can, we can advance the patriarchy or some other such nonsense. Guys, we're, we're, we're cooperating with the people who are trying to emasculate us. And then we end up becoming a sort of a, a second mom. Your home doesn't need two moms. Your home has a good mom already. What your home needs is a dad. Yeah, I know you gotta work, so go make your money. But bring your best to your home with a particular focus on your relationship with your wife. Because we are going to concentrate on being the best husbands we can possibly be. Second thing. Let's us, brothers, commit ourselves to the disciplines of godliness. Now, guys, godliness doesn't just happen. The New Testament makes it pretty clear that that you and I are asked to cooperate with God the Holy Spirit in this process of sanctifying us. Uh, Godliness just doesn't automatically occur. There's a cooperation that goes on between me and God the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. And so I want to list four disciplines. Now, guys, you you know, I could list, there's probably 404 that we could list. But the ones that I want to list for you are the ones, I mean, I, I chose these self-consciously because I think they're the, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I guess they're the most violated. But in in, in my estimation, they could be the most important. Commit ourselves to the discipline of purity. Guys, it's those, um, it's those socially acceptable, those, um, uh, publicly allowable, uh, little pieces of, um, questionable activity that are ruining us. You know, I, I think the devil has a way of taking his most dangerous weapons and, and making them, them appear to be the most antiseptic. Um, it's that, it's, it's the screen time, guys. The stuff that we're looking at. Brent Wilkins showed me a study recently that um, on average we look at Eight hours of a screen a day, whether it's a TV screen or a computer screen or a telephone screen. And I, I assume, I guess, that much of that is coming at work. 
But let's just, for argument's sake, say it's not coming at work. So add this up. You got eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours of screen time? That doesn't leave a whole lot of time for anything else now, does it? And during that screen time, we are being exposed to dirty jokes, crudities, suggestive things, perversions. You know, guys, I bet we see more perversions in a week than our grandfather saw in a lifetime. You know, there is a statement that Job makes in chapter 31, verse 1, Job 31.1. You might want to write that down and memorize it because it goes like this. Job says, I have made covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a virgin. Now, guys, every guy in this room knows what he's talking about. Every man in this room knows how hard that is, but it can be done. We can control our eyes. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I've never had much of a, a stomach for blood and guts. And, and um, so when I'm driving down I-55 and I'm headed towards Jackson, Mississippi, and I see out there in the horizon, I see this red heap in the middle of the road. I, I'm thinking, okay, something's been run over, a armadillo or a bear or a deer. I don't know what it is, but something's been run over up there. And I don't want to look at that. And so I steal myself and I whiz on by that thing, driving the speed limit. <laughs> and I don't look. I can pull that off every time. If I don't want to look at that, which I don't, I can pull it off every time. Guys, if we are going to commit ourselves to the discipline of purity, we're going to have to manage, we're going to have to control our eyes, what we look at. And, and, and how we look at members of the opposite sex. If we're going to commit ourselves to the discipline of purity. Here's the second one. We commit ourselves to the discipline of integrity. Guys, let me throw some data at you just real quickly. Um, a survey was taken recently about what you would do for $10 million. What would you do for $10 million? Well, 25% of the respondents said that they would abandon their homes, their families. For $10 million. The um, 23% said that they would become a prostitute for a week. Now, I don't know whether that was the females and the males or just the females. I, 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 I didn't, but I mean, you've heard that, that joke. It's a rather crude joke about the man. He says, he goes to this woman. He says, would you sleep with me for a million dollars? And she said, well, yeah. And he said, well, would you sleep with me for $10? And she said, well, no. What kind of woman do you think I am? And he said, well, we already have settled that. We're just quibbling over the price now. Guys, what would you sell yours for? I'm not talking about your body. What would you sell? How much is your integrity worth to you? What would you sell it for? By the way, in that same survey, 7% said that they would murder for $10 million. So let's assume we got 500 people in here. We have 35 potential murderers amongst us. 
80% of corporate executives admit to having driving, had driven drunk or had driven drunk. Um, if valuable corporate property is stolen from the corporation, six times out of seven, the thief is a man. One of my heroes is G.K. Chesterton, and he said, Morality, like art, consists of drawing a line somewhere. Okay, brothers, where are we going to draw it? Hmm? What do you draw yours? I think it was C.S. Lewis says, it's easy to tell a lie. It's just hard to tell only one. Proverbs chapter 6. The reason I've started with those two. Proverbs chapter 6 starts like this. Six things that a Lord hates, yea, a seventh. Haughty tongue, excuse me, haughty eyes, and a lying tongue. So, the first two disciplines I've mentioned it has to do with your eyes and your tongue. If you want a synonym for what I'm talking about, I'm just talking about just rot gut honesty. Just, just honesty. You know, guys, um, a month or so, oh gosh, longer than that, two months ago or so, Susie and I went out to supper. We go out to this one place. Uh, we try to go out every Friday night, just the two of us, and, and um, we always find some place that offers a coupon, and, and um, that means we eat a lot of Mexican. Um, so uh, we found this one place that we really like, and there's one dish that we really like, and, and um, um, we ate our dish and, uh, and our two Diet Cokes. No margaritas. We ate our, we ate our little uh, dish and then the bill came. And I noticed on the bill that she had only charged us for one of those Diet Cokes. So, you, you know, you know how expensive soft drinks have become. It was a buck ninety-five. So I said, well, okay. And I put the tip on there and signed it and left. That night, um, God would not let me get away with that. And so the next morning, and the only way I ever got to sleep that night, I said, okay, I'll take care of it tomorrow morning. So, you know, I got cleaned up the next Saturday and, and um, went out to this Mexican restaurant, walked in. I don't know what time it was. It was around noon sometime. And there was a lady in there, and I don't, she was some kind of manager or something or other, and I handed her $2, and I said, um, um, you didn't charge me but for one of my soft drinks last night, and I, I uh, wanted to pay you for that other soft drink. This fool just brought two to months back in. I mean, it was like, and I was walking out and she was headed over to tell her buds about two bucks. Okay, brothers, where, where, where does the line get drawn for us? Well, you got to draw yours somewhere. Here's the third discipline that I think we have to commit ourselves to, and that is a... Uh, a discipline of worship. Guys, Martin Luther often talked about um, a consideration of the horror of the infinitude. Now, you, you figure that out. Considering the horror of the infinitude, the horrors of God. And, and he, he, 
he said so frequently, he said it's good for us. Because it, um, it improves the mind to consider God and who he's like and what he's, what he's up to. And, um, but it humbles us. And it puts us in our place. Now, guys, I can't prove this either. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons that many of us are uncomfortable in a worship service and many of the reasons that we try to avoid worship services is because we don't like feeling that. We don't like being put in our place. We don't like being humbled. And so we avoid those, those places where we are. I'm saying to you, brothers, that we have to commit ourselves to worship. That we need to get down on our knees and fight like a man. And regular consideration of the infinitude is something that you need regularly, repeatedly. And I'm telling you, you you ask yourself this question. Is not your family the healthiest and the happiest when you are walking meekly? When do the most issues arrive in your fam- arise in your family? When you're Mr. Big Shot? Well, one of the things, guys, that will put us in our place, when we need to be put in our place, is worship. Don't avoid worship. In fact, do just the opposite. Avoid everything else but worship. Fourthly, the fourth, the fourth discipline. Um, we commit ourselves to the discipline of marital fidelity. Guys, I think if you know me very long, you've known what a, what a great fan I am of marriage. I love marriage. I love being married. I'm glad I'm married. And I hate for people to talk bad about it. I love marriage. But I'll say this. Marriage is a decision that you make that closes more doors than any decision in lifetime. Because what it does, it says that I am now, as a married man, I am shut up to one woman. Now, I, for one, am delighted to be shut up, and I'm particularly delighted to be shut up to the one woman to whom I'm shut up. But ladies and gentlemen, I, no, not ladies, just gentlemen, would you, would you please listen to me? I cannot allow myself the luxury of relationships with other women. I do not have female friends with whom I hang out. I am far too wicked for that. Brothers, close those doors quick. For it's too late. We are committing ourselves to marital fidelity that I am going to be a man of one woman. I've told you this story before, but I, I love to tell it. Years ago, um, oh, it was years ago, I went to do some Christmas shopping at a place. It was just this little hip 
ladies store and, and, you know, the girls were all young and cute and dressed right. And, and, um, my wife had found this. I was buying one for my secretary and I was buying, I was buying like, there were these little silver, they weren't real silver, but silver plate bows. And they were a little pin on that you'd, I, I guess the woman would wear it right there. I don't know. Anyway. So I walked in there and there there was. Susie had sent me over there to get them and, and they were affordable. And, and so I went in there and I said, mm, um, I, I'd like to have that. Actually, I need four of them in boxes. And the little girl, this little hot chick that was behind the, the counter waiting on me, she said, Woo, you are some kind of ladies man, aren't you? <laughs> You're laughing much too uh, much too heartily over this. <laughs> there was a day. <laughs> really hurt my feelings. Uh, it's a, but she said, "You, you are a ladies' man." And I said to her, "Just, I mean, just neat jerk." I said, "Oh no 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 no. Um, I'm a one woman man." And that girl said. I mean, she didn't cry, but she, she, she looked at me and caught me in the back of my eyes and she says, that sounds so beautiful. Brothers, we are one woman, man, men, just one. All the other doors are closed. And if they're not closed, get them closed, get them closed quick before you do something really stupid. And then we got big problems. All right, that's the second thing. The third thing is that we commit ourselves to masculinity. Now, guys, I'm not saying that, you know, that's a buzzword these days, masculinity. But um, I'm not saying commit ourselves to being an autocrat under the guise of masculinity. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is commit ourselves to being biblically masculine. Now, in a word, what I have in mind is this, leadership, that we become the leaders and exercise that leadership in our home. And in the New Testament, that leadership is called servant leadership. And, uh, you know, it sounds really good, but it ain't very easy, is it? But we all love the idea of being a leader. Love the idea of being a leader. Yes, sir, that being a leader, I like being a leader. You know, I, I just finished the biography of Dwight David Eisenhower, for those of you who don't know, was the President of the United States from 1952 to 1960. But he was also most known for being the Supreme Allied Commander of the Allied Troops. He was the one that was in charge of the whole D-Day invasion. He's the one that made the call, and he made the right one. And, uh, man, that sounds like a good job being the leader, doesn't it? Boy, oh boy. Got that cushy little office in London. Got all those people doing everything he says. Yeah, that's really a good job at leader job. Yeah, Eisenhower was the one who had to decide which divisions, which brigades were assigned to Omaha where he knew they would be butchered. When the war was over and Eisenhower came home and there were ticker tape parades going on all over the country and they wanted Eisenhower. He was the, the most uh, uh, known name in America. And they wanted him to be, you know, be the grandmaster of the parade and speak at the parade. And I'm not quoting him perfectly. But he said almost at every time that he spoke at one of these parades, he said this. Yes, America. 
celebrate your victory. It is a great one. But no one man should ever gain glory at the expense of another man's blood. Brothers, leadership is costly. It ain't easy. It's earned. It's earned by by love, by by acts of sacrificial giving, and they're, they're, they're usually small ones. It's earned by by submission. Little acts of self-yielding. You know, guys, becoming a married man doesn't give you a ticket to avoid submission. It just gives you a way to to submit purposefully. We, too, are called to yield and demonstrate our willingness to yield. It, it, it's earned by, by sacrificial giving, by submission... And by initiating things, initiating things like um, the direction of our home spiritually. I don't know if you read the cartoons, but I don't even know the name of it, but I read it every morning. It's two little, they're up in the left-hand corner in there. Uh, one of them's Dennis the Menace, and the other one, I forget the name of it. But And it's a... Um, it's the, the guy that does it is on vacation and his son is doing the drawings and they're really, you know, I don't know whether you read that. But anyway, yesterday's, it was, it, this was the picture. It was Sunday morning and wife, all dressed, is pulling her husband out of the bed saying, let's go to church. Brothers. Has that ever happened in your home? Ever? Has it ever happened once in your home? That I want you to know you have failed as a leader. You're supposed to be directing where that home is going to go spiritually. You're the one! You're the one! You're the one! We direct how much debt we're going to tolerate in the home. We direct problem solving. We initiate forgiveness. Guys, there's a story. There's a story in the Old Testament about David. You know him, the shepherd boy, the... The um, king of Israel, man after God, that guy, David. Um, David had several wives. That was his first mistake. Um, but he had several wives, and thus he had several little family rivulets. Um, you know, they all had the same father, but they had different mothers. And so on one occasion, one of his sons, uh, by the name of Amnon, um, took a fancy for one of his stepdaughters, one of his half-sisters, excuse me, not daughters, uh, half-sisters, whose name was Tamar. And so he thought he was really in love with her, and 
I think you know the story, but he finally got her into his bedroom, and there he forcibly and violently um, violated his half-sister. When David, the father of both of them, heard about this, this event, he uh, he ranted and he raved and he screamed and he kicked the dog and, and he threw some things. and But he didn't do anything. And you know what happens next? Absalom, Tamar's whole brother, takes over this whole situation and plots a, a way that he can murder his half-brother Amnon. And he does murder him, and then everything comes apart, and there's a war in Israel, et cetera, et cetera. And I, 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 the text doesn't say this. I'm not... I'm not um, I can't prove this. I'm simply saying something to think about, brothers. I wonder. I wonder how much of Absalom's behavior and his plotting to kill his brother and all that, how much of Absalom's behavior is directly traceable to his father who did nothing. I know of homes who are so badly damaged because dads wouldn't do anything. Brothers, I I wonder how many demons we have unleashed on our homes because we refuse to lead. Now, don't forget, I said... Leading is earned. It's earned by love. It's earned by submission. Yeah. But brothers, it's earned by initiating right choices, godly choices. And there's not going to be any godly choices until we've committed ourselves to the disciplines of godliness. You know those four things that I mentioned? Purity and integrity and worship and fidelity. And by the way, guys, those four things... Those are not the ends in themselves. Those are means to an end. Um, they, they, are, they are ways that I can get a hold of God. They don't guarantee godliness. But if you want a guarantee, I'll give you one. If you don't commit yourself to these four things, I can guarantee you there won't be any godliness. And then when there's no godliness, leadership suffers. And the family pays the price. Let me wrap this up this way. You you, you come into the New Testament... And you find Jesus being described as, you know, the Savior of his people and yada, yada, yada. That's all very true. Uh, he's described as the head of the church. Uh, at one place he's called the, um, the cornerstone of the church, the founder of the church. But let me tell you what else he's called. He's called the husband. Do you know that? 
You know, we're called the bride, the church. We're the bride. He is the husband. And he's good at it. So, brothers, I simply say this. With Jesus as a model, let's get good at it. Where we need to repent, get on your knees and fight like a man. Do that. And and, and may I say real quickly, not quickly, but I'm assuming for a moment that you're all Christians, and that's probably not true. I don't know of a time in the history of the Christian church where every person in a, in a group this size where everybody was a Christian. But if you've not yet given yourself to Jesus Christ, my friend, that's where you must start. You must... You must throw yourself at Jesus Christ and take Him as your Savior and Lord. Do that now. And then let's get about the business of husbanding our wives as well as Jesus Christ husbands his. Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind us of these very important things that you've assigned us, duties, responsibilities, uh, callings, I pray that you will use um, this, this brief discussion to, to raise awareness and to quicken and to, um, and to convict where needed and where we can move away from our, our lazinesses and, and get back to the job that you've given us. Might our wives benefit? Might our children benefit? Might our country, our church benefit from the appearance of a whole new breed of godly men determined to carry out responsibilities entrusted to them by the Lord of glory. We pray, of course, in his name.